Father, as always, we are grateful to you for the opportunity to sing your praises. And though we are separated by families in little family groups all over this city and in different parts of the world and our country, yet in our hearts we are fellowshipping together, we are singing together, praying together, listening together, worshiping together, and all of it because you are worthy, for you have given us your Son, a priceless eternal gift that we do not deserve, but we are so grateful for. Help us now, Father, to see the glory of Christ afresh and anew, and may you challenge us to know him more by this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You will never know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. It's been a number of years since I first heard John Piper use those words, but they came back to me like a flood this week as I was preparing this message. If you're a Christian parent of a young man or a young woman who has recently left the home for college or career, then you probably have learned something about praying with a wartime mentality. When you push your barely adult child out of the nest, you understand that you are sending him or her into a world that is fraught with all kinds of spiritual dangers. It doesn't matter so much to you whether they're they dazzle the world with their inspiring intellect. You're not too terribly concerned about whether they get a great promotion on the job. Rather, what keeps you up at night is a concern for whether or not they will come home with their faith still intact. This is a valid concern because your son or daughter may very well find him or herself studying under or working under people who would love nothing more than to separate them from their faith. That faith that you as a parent have worked so hard and so long to instill into their hearts and solidify in their souls. And think for a moment about your relational world. It's probably safe to say that almost all of us know someone who went off to college or went off to their first career, and within the first 12 months, they abandoned the faith. Make no mistake, this is, this is not a new phenomenon, nor is it one that affects only young people. It, it affects old people sometimes as well. And from the text of Scripture, we could demonstrate with ease that this problem finds its origin all the way back in the early days of the church. And Paul knew all too well what it was like to have personal friends who turned their backs on Christ and abandoned the faith completely, men such as Hymenaeus and Alexander and Demas, just to name a few. And Paul was always keenly aware of the spiritual dangers his churches were facing and would face after he planted them and left them in the care of God. He knew that unbelieving friends and families of these new believers would count it their duty to entice these young Christian loved ones away from Christ, and they would do it with zeal. 
This, beloved, I think is a fair appraisal of the theme and focus of the passage before us. I think you'll sense the tone of this as we read the text, but before I read the text, let me tell you that while that is the theme, I think the application for you and me is this, simply that the wisest people in the world are those who discover and apply God's riches in Christ. Now let's stand together and read our text. This is Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, although we're only going to cover the first five, five verses, but I want you to get a feel for the context. And so here we go. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible argument, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I know it's a long passage, but it is a beautiful ex exposition of our hope in Christ. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Paul's great concern in this passage is that the believers would persevere in their faith despite the influences of the false teachers who were actively pawning their spiritual myths and lies under the guise of superior wisdom. We know this is Paul's concern because, because of what he wrote in chapter 2, verse 4, which I just read a moment ago. He declares, I say this in order that no one may delude or entice you with plausible, that is, deceptive arguments. And there are plenty of them. Plenty of people who are seeking to 
deceive us and to draw especially our young ones away from the truth. And so Paul knew the believers in Colossae were facing spiritual dangers like this, and he wanted the disciples, he wanted, the, he wanted to strengthen them and disciple them and protect them against the enemy's advances. But how? How would he do that? How could Paul protect this little flock? How would he equip the Colossians against the enemy of their souls? Well, there were two ways that I can think of. The first is that he would write them a letter, like this one. And this is what he did in jail. As soon as he wrote this one, he wrote Ephesians. Or maybe he wrote Ephesians first, I'm not sure. But he wrote letters in order to disciple and to equip and to shore up the believers back home. Second, he would pray. Indeed, the core of this passage is about Paul praying for them. Now, you may be thinking, I don't recall when you were reading that, I don't recall hearing anything about prayer in this passage, and that would be an astute observation. But notice how Paul begins the text. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. The question is, how then was Paul struggling on their behalf? Well, when you consider the fact that he was writing from jail, it really limits his options. Uh, when we're thinking about this, we need to clear away anything that he couldn't do in jail. He was struggling for them, but how? If you read the literature on this, you will see repeatedly, again and again and again, faithful scholars coming to the conclusion that what is going on here is that Paul is struggling for them in prayer. He's praying for them. He was praying earnestly for them that their faith would not fail. Well, what specifically were the objects of his prayers? Well, I see three important things that Paul believed would protect them from the enemy of their souls. Number one, he prayed, that, um, he, he prayed in such a way that was wrestling for unity in love. He prayed for unity in love. Secondly, he wrestled for riches of assurance, the riches of assurance. Thirdly, he wrestled for the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These three things were how Paul labored for those whom he loved in the church of Colossae and the other churches so that their faith would not fail. The good news is, we have no indication throughout the book of Colossians that their faith ever did fail. Uh, the churches eventually failed, or at least they moved. Um, but as far as we know, their faith remained strong. Well, Paul wrestled for the unity of love. This is the first thing. So he says in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. By the way here, the word for struggle means conflict contention, or fight. Sometimes it's used in reference to engaging in a foot race. Struggle, as with all these other definitions, is, a, is an athletic term. It's a word that you would typically hear among those who were competing in the games. They were struggling to win. This is what Paul was doing, apparently, in prayer. This is the kind of wrestling Paul engaged in. This was not weak shallow prayer. This was 
involved prayer. It involved anxious care and mental conflict in view of the dangers that the believers in Colossae were beginning to be exposed to. Paul is wrestling in prayer with them. This is the same kind of wrestling that Paul engaged in a couple of verses previous when his concern was that one day he would stand before the Lord and present, hopefully, everyone he had ministered to, everyone he had led to Christ, everyone he had discipled. He hoped that one day he would present them complete or mature in Christ. For that, he labored He toiled. And this is the same term here, same kind of action. Paul was serious about prayer. Paul was serious about prayer. He understood that prayer was was for, um, for warfare. He understood what prayer was for. And he believed, therefore, that the people needed more than anything else from him in jail was to pray as if they were at war. This is serious stuff. This is serious prayer. This is serious commitment. And you can imagine Paul, he repeatedly in his epistles refers to praying for people night and day, often with tears. And notice too that the church, the Colossae was not the only church he was concerned about. There were actually three churches in that region. In addition to Colossae, there was also the church of Laodicea, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation. They were guilty of being neither hot nor cold and in danger of the Lord spewing them out of their mouth. There was also the church of Hierapolis, which is not mentioned here, but later in chapter 4 they'll be mentioned. These are the three towns or three cities of the Lycus Valley. In fact, Laodicea was kind of the capital city there. So Paul had a lot of people to pray for. And apparently he prayed for them all. If you read the end of the book of Romans or any other, most of his other epistles, at the end he prays for people, especially at the end of Romans. It's astounding how many people he could name and no doubt he had been praying for. But many of these men and women who were in Colossae and the surrounding churches, he had never met but he was praying for them. I learned this week that there's a Latin saying that goes like this, precor est laboro, which means to pray is to work. To pray is to work. Now, I suspect that every Christian hearing my voice would say that they pray. Surely, you pray. You can't be a Christian probably without praying. You may pray for a few minutes in the morning. You might offer a brief prayer for help in the middle of the day when things are tense. But few of us pray in such a manner that could legitimately be termed the work, the labor of prayer or wrestling in prayer. And apparently this deficiency in prayer among God's people was true even with Jesus' disciples. You remember the night that he was going to be arrested, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus would leave them for a little while and pray, and then he would come back. And one time he said, What? Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? 
But Paul labored in prayer. He labored in prayer for the Colossians. He wrestled in prayer. And now notice how he prayed on their behalf. According to verse 2, he wrestled for the unity of love. He wrestled for the unity of love. Specifically, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged or filled with courage, or you might say that their hearts might be strengthened, being knit together in love, in love. The principle here is where there is spirit-wrought unity, welded, welding together by agape love, there is strength. Where there is spirit-wrought unity, welded together by agape love, there is strength. Hence, the need for people to be knit together in love in their local churches. You know, the most amazing thing about the Church of Colossae was not that it was a group of religious people gathering for worship and mutual edification. Rather, the truly amazing thing about the Church of Colossae and the surrounding churches was that those who were gathering included both Jews and Gentiles, and that they, listen carefully, they loved one another. They loved one another. These who were formerly mortal enemies were now meeting together. They were gathering together on the Lord's day for prayer. And by the way, I was reminded when I went to Israel a few months ago, a couple months ago, that um, you know the church meets on Sunday, but in Israel, they meet on Saturday. The church meets when all the Jews meet on the Sabbath. Well, what happens on Sunday? Well, Sunday is a work day, and it occurred to me that that must have been how it was like for Jewish Christians living in the realm of Israel, that when they met on the Lord's day, which the text clearly says, they must have met before they went to work. They must have gotten up early to fellowship. Many times in the dark, they would meet together and sing God's praises and encourage one another before they started the day. Paul understood that a group of people who were knit or welded together in agape love would serve as a powerful protection against the schemes of false teachers. God created us to love and to be loved. And there is no greater love on earth than, than the love of two people who are mutually devoted to Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is why it's so critical that when choosing a college for our kids, we limit the choices to those that have a, a thriving biblical church where the goal of their instruction is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. I mean, who would ever want to leave such a community where you, where you love and are loved, where you are accepted and are accepting of others, where you fellowship together, you work together, you sing together, you rejoice, you serve one another, you meet one another's needs. Who would want to leave a community like that? This was a huge protection for people who, were, who might be otherwise tempted to turn their backs on Christ. And so Paul wrestled for the unity of love. That is, 
he prayed earnestly that the members of the church would be bound to one another in mutual love for Christ and love for one another. That's how he prayed. Secondly, Paul wrestled for the riches of assurance. This, this just gets better and better as we go. He wrestled for the riches of assurance. Now let's pick up at the end of verse 2 where it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In this community of Bible-saturated love, a community of Bible-saturated love, which I, I love that phrase, it's a, it's a description of every healthy church. It is a Bible, it's a community of Bible-saturated love where Christians are able to reach or apprehend all the spiritual riches that are only discoverable in Christ. The term full assurance here can mean complete certainty. Complete certainty. And Paul is speaking of spiritual wealth and treasure that you are absolutely certain about. Another way of saying this is that Paul prayed God would grant them all the riches of certainty that understanding brings. He's praying that they would receive all the riches, riches of certainty that understanding brings. And Paul wants to impress, impress upon us that certainty or assurance about what the Bible teaches comes not by trying to muster up faith in a vacuum and not merely by accepting what your parents have told you to be true about the Bible, but rather by apprehending yourself a deep, rich understanding of these things for yourself. And that means we should be serious about learning what the Bible actually teaches. We should be studying the Bible, not just listening to people teach it, studying the Bible. It's why we offer Bible studies at Calvary Bible Church. This is why in September we hope, Lord willing, if it's allowed to start meeting together again, we hope to offer what we're calling uh, E4M, Equipping for Ministry for the Men. It's going to be a three-year program where it's kind of modeled after this, where we come together as a small community bound together in love, and we study the book. We study the Word of God so that we can apprehend all the riches of certainty that certainty brings to us, understanding brings to us. And so, we apprehend this not merely by listening or believing what others have told us. We, we apprehend this by personal study and growing in the knowledge of the Word of God. And the most important thing the Bible teaches is God's mystery, which Paul says is Christ the most important thing we can learn is everything we can learn about Christ. 
there's a little spiritual, there's really very little spiritual protection in settling for a casual and shallow comprehension of the person and work of Christ. Paul prays for you to gain all the riches of understanding that will fill your soul with absolute certainty about Jesus Christ. Now, you know, in our culture, our culture does not look favorably upon people who speak with certainty about spiritual things. Ambiguity is loved. Ambiguity is accepted. But certainty is offensive when it comes to truth. It's considered uncouth and politically incorrect to express any kind of truth with any kind of certainty. Witness what happened this week to the My Pillow guy, who, while standing in the presidential podium at the White House, mentioned that the, corona, the coronavirus pandemic is God's way of calling us back to Himself, back to the Bible, and back to our families. He was absolutely vilified. He didn't even mention the gospel. He was absolutely vilified by members of the media for it. It was astounding, but not really shocking. Such people, as in those in the media who did this, they pretend to be wise and rich in truth, but they are absolutely bankrupt in the things that matter for eternity. In the church, in Christ, every child who knows something about Jesus, he, they know Christ and are growing in Christ is wiser than all of them put together. And by the way, the term mystery and the term knowledge, these are not throwaway words. And the false teachers were always enticing people by suggesting that believing in Christ is good, but they have access to even deeper knowledge. They have access to mystery truth, the mysteries of spiritual life that are hidden from everyone else except those who are initiated into their particular group, their cult, their religious association. In response, Paul declares that the only spiritual knowledge worth receiving is the full knowledge of God's mystery, and God's mystery is Christ. Everything else is rubbish. And so, to guard and protect the saints at Colossae from the perils of false teaching, Paul prays for the riches of assurance, or the riches that certainty brings, that are available to anyone who would grow in their knowledge of Christ. Thirdly, Paul wrestled for the treasure, the treasures of wisdom. He writes, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Sometimes when people bury a chest full of treasure, they do it to keep it protected, keep it concealed. However, the treasures that are hidden in Christ are meant to be discovered. Paul tells us that the treasures that are hidden in Jesus consist of wisdom and knowledge. And notice that it is not some wisdom and knowledge or a taste of wisdom and knowledge, or a little bit of wisdom and knowledge, but 
all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. All of it is found in Christ. You need wisdom. You need to understand how to live through the coronavirus or the loss of your job or trouble in your marriage or in your family. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. And by that I mean run to his word. Run to his spirit in prayer. Run to his truth found in the Bible, especially the New Testament. Listen, before the incarnation, when the word became flesh, God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge were hidden. But when Christ came, they were unfolded to all who believe in him. Just as he did for the Corinthians, so now to the Colossians, Paul insists that Christ is the wisdom of God, and in him we find true knowledge. And remember, this is the area of the world where Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, it wasn't very, very distant past that those men were alive and taught. And that area of the world was known for its philosophy and all of its philosophies. And yet all of it amounts to a pile of nothing compared to knowing Christ. Paul knew this. That's why Paul said he's willing for fellowship with Christ, to become like him, to know him, the power of his resurrection, and even the fellowship of his sufferings. If suffering would enable Paul to know Christ more, then bring it on. Bring on the suffering. Because to know Christ is to know true wisdom and knowledge. A.T. Robertson writes, in Christ, man is given the knowledge necessary to guide us in the way of life. Christ is able to instruct us in all that we need to know so that it is not necessary for us to apply to philosophy or to the teachings of human beings. I can't tell you how many times over the years a young man will go off to college and I'll ask him, what are you going to study? So I'm going to study philosophy. I find out later they've either abandoned the faith or they were seriously attempt, attempted to abandon the faith. This is the very thing Paul's concerned about in Colossians. It's the very thing he's concerned about. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. What, what, what kind of treasures? What, what does it look like? Well, when we talk about the mysteries, the mystery of Christ and the knowledge and wisdom that we gain from Christ, we're talking about the mystery, for example, of why man exists, the meaning of life, our purpose for being, our role in the world, our personal identity, our relationship with God, his plan of salvation, what it means to be delivered from the evil one. It's about the believer's resurrection, the purpose and unity of the, of the church, who God is, his plan of redemption, his eternal attributes, his design for the nations and for every sentient being in the cosmos. And all of this and much, much more is revealed to us, not concealed, no longer hidden, but revealed to us in Christ. And whether anyone else in the world believes it or not, this wisdom 
is there. It is here. It is in Christ. As every believer knows by fresh and repeated discovery. Fresh and repeated discovery. It should be life for us. And we crack open the Bible. Fresh and yet repeated discovery. God has been so gracious to give us everything that we need in him. And he protects us. These fresh and repeated discoveries of wisdom and knowledge of Christ is what secures us and protects us from the smooth-talking, serpentine errorists who would separate us from our faith if they can. So, if there is a young, barely adult person in your home who will soon be jumping or perhaps getting pushed out of the nest, now you know how to pray for them. Now you know how to pray. And I hope that you will not just pray shallowly, but that you would wrestle in prayer for them and for everyone else you know who is being potentially tempted in this way. And as you do, I hope that you will remind yourself that the wisest people in the world are those who discover and apply God's riches in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this warning and for the remedy to the warning that you've given us here. We know, Father, that there are many in the world who would wish that we would just join them and stop being so contrary. Oh, Father, I pray that you protect us from being contrary in ways that we shouldn't. But, oh, Father, help us to stand firmly and joyfully and in a way that welcomes others to find what we have found in the hidden mystery which has now been opened to us in Christ. Oh, Father, may our ministry to them cause them to discover the hidden treasure in the field. And for joy over it, may they go and sell everything they have, as it were, that may, they may know Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of their own derived from keeping the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.